Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Alright, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. But today on the show, it is the last of our three special episodes looking back at 2020. Although this one's a little different. We're doing something we've never done here before on the show. Uh, we are going to look at movies, not from 2020, but just any movie that we watched for the first time last year. And make a list of our favorites. So, uh, you know, obviously with coronavirus and everything, we've all been stuck in the house watching way more movies than usual. And so uh, we get to watch a lot of classics that we maybe had never gotten around to or just had escaped us or, you know, one way or another, we never got around to it. And now we watched it and here we are to talk about it. So joining me is Josh Bell from Awesome Movie Year. And we each have 10 movies to talk about here. And there's some really interesting ones on this list. So that is coming up here in a second. But before we do get to that, I want to remind you, as always, to make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together on your podcast app of choice. And uh, we've got a lot of Piecing It Together coming your way in the coming weeks, so make sure you're subscribed. You can also follow us over on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And, uh, you know, we also have a Patreon over on the Patreon, we uh, we post all kinds of bonus content from Piecing It Together, Awesome Movie Year, also My Music Career, lots of great stuff. It's called Produced by David Rosen. It combines all of that content into one great Patreon, so check that out. So, with all that said, uh, let's get into this conversation, because we got a lot of movies to talk about, and there may be some great recommendations in here for you to go check out. <music> All right, so Josh Bell is back with us. Josh, how's it going? Oh, it's going good, Dave. It's been at least 10 to 15 minutes since we last spoke. Yes. <laughs> we have been busy this uh, last couple of weeks, haven't we? Between end of year episodes and the 1984 season of Awesome Movie. Yeah, yeah. I feel busy. like I'm... I, I, no one podcasts as much as Dave Rosen, but I feel like I've been getting close <laughs> to it in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, you're doing, you're doing quite a bit. It's true. Well... What we're going to do today is something new for piecing it together. Uh, we always do our end of year coverage and best movies of the year and all that stuff. But we're going to look at movies that we watched for the first time this past year and uh, make a little ranking list of both of our list of our favorites of classics that we maybe just never got around to and ended up loving now. And so I thought this would be a lot of fun. Uh how many movies did you watch this year? Did you watch a lot of movies? I watched a lot of movies. Although there are people, like, I, I feel like 
every time I think I could not have possibly watched more movies, other yeah. people on Letterboxd have watched like twice as many. But yeah, I watched, yeah. I think it was, I, I was happy with the number. I think it was 555 wow. movies this year, which is certainly the most I've ever watched in a year. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, in the year like this year has been, I mean, what else did we have to do but sit around and watch movies and podcast about them? And uh, yeah, I watched way more movies than ever before. And it's funny going into 2020, my goal was to try to catch up and like start watching more older movies because as you know all i ever really watch is what's in the theater and i never watch at home so i was trying i was actively trying to do that and then i just got the biggest excuse in the world to do that so right i mean i am always trying to watch as many older movies as i can um i've been making a list like this of my favorite uh you know first time watches from other years since i think 2008 maybe as mm -hmm. something to post on my on my website and uh, in, in various times in the past, I've had certain goals about watching, I uh, try to watch a movie that was made before I was born, like once, once a week, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I, there have been years when I've been able to do that this year. I, I didn't necessarily, I mean, I watched a lot of movies, but I watched a lot more new movies even this year than I ever have before, just because I was writing about them in so many different configurations. Right. But um, I'm always eager to watch as many older movies as I can. For sure. For sure. Well, uh, before we get into our lists, uh, I, I will also mention that, you know, again, with Awesome Movie Year, uh, I've been trying to step it up a little bit and actually watch all the movies you guys cover over there. And so that definitely factors into my list here. I'm sure there'll be some Awesome Movie Year movies on your list. So everyone listening, make sure to listen to Awesome Movie Year. But uh, yeah, I think one of the great things for me about doing Awesome Movie Year is the chance to see older movies that I wouldn't necessarily have seen or didn't know about sure. or whatever. And that, especially this year when we've done seasons that look back further, we had a season on 1977 and a season that we're doing right now in 1984. And there's a larger proportion of movies in those seasons that I haven't seen, uh, as opposed to when we talk about more recent years and I've usually seen more of the movies. So yeah, get a chance to see more older movies. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a lot of stuff that I maybe wouldn't have gotten a chance to watch. So that's, that's, that makes it awesome. So, uh, yeah. let's start these lists. What do you got? Number 10. So number 10, speaking of is a movie that we covered in awesome movie year. Uh, and is a movie that I didn't necessarily expect much out of. It was our documentary pick in our season on 1977. It's Pumping Iron <laughs> from directors George Butler and Robert Fiore. And I mean, I was familiar with this movie because it's one of the earliest movies that brought Arnold Schwarzenegger to kind of public attention. It's a documentary about the bodybuilding scene in the late 70s. And it focuses a lot on Schwarzenegger, who was a huge champion at the time, as well as on Lou Ferrigno who was kind of a big challenger to Schwarzenegger at the time. And of course also went on to become an actor and a major pop culture figure. So it's this look at these two major pop culture figures kind of before they were famous. And it's cool as that, but it's just so entertaining. Uh, I mean, this is a movie that's really well constructed as like fun, crowd pleasing entertainment. And I mean, as a documentary, there's bits of it that are clearly uh, manipulated in certain ways in order to make it more entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, but it all works really well. And I think because these guys are in a way performers, even just as bodybuilders, I mean, bodybuilding is about getting on stage and posing and getting the audience to be into you. So they're already performers and they're clearly playing it up uh, for the camera, 
Schwarzenegger is so fun to watch in this movie. And I mean, he's essentially like a reality show villain before (laughs) that kind of thing existed, where he's giving all these interviews, just trash talking everyone around him and talking about how great he is and how much he messes with people. And it's really fun, but it also portrays him, again, almost like a reality show villain. And in a way that I think he would never portray himself now as this beloved celebrity and a politician who was the governor of California and is very careful about his image. And he's careful about his image, but in a different way in this movie, uh, you know, projecting that sort of brash cockiness. Um, but everyone else, too. Lou Ferrigno is, is, is fun to watch in his whole weird dynamic with his father and lesser known people like Franco Columbu, who went on to do a bit of B-movie acting. And it's just if you think this is just like, oh, it's this kind of dated documentary about bodybuilding, it's so much more than that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's actually hard to imagine anyone nowadays putting themselves out there in that way, you know, especially with just some of the shit he says. And yeah, this is actually one of my honorable mentions. I, I loved it too. It was just uh, totally ridiculous. And, and I don't know if it was at all what I was expecting, like going in, like I'd always heard of it and always knew that Arnold made a bodybuilding documentary, but uh, yeah, it, it's a fun movie for sure. Yeah, it it is. And I think, right. I I also really didn't have the, I didn't know what to expect and it was a pleasant surprise. So I'll go with my number 10, which is one of five eighties movies I had to watch for a guest appearance on the binge movies podcast. And it's called dead heat. It came out in 1988 uh, from director Mark Goldblatt. And it is one of the dumbest movies I've seen in a long time. But as you know, I do I do like a dumb movie every now and then. And uh, it's essentially a buddy cop movie that's mashed up with the zombie movie genre. And in this movie, uh, Joe Piscopo is this just wisecracking detective. And his uh, partner, Detective Roger Mortis is slowly turning into a zombie and dying. He's played by Treat Williams. And it's just so ridiculous. Every, like, buddy cop, like, you know, cliche and and all that stuff, except for their zombies. And it all of that is added into it. There's actually some really great practical creature effects mixed in. And this is a movie that I had never heard of until I watched it this year. This would have been like up there with some of like the classic gore, silly gore movies that you rent when you're, you know, 12 years old in high school or whatever, you know, and, and just, just be like, this is, this is the craziest shit and I love it. And I would have loved this movie as a teenager. And I really tapped into, uh, Uh, that part of myself while watching this as dumb as it is i really tapped into it and had so much fun with it and uh one one more point though there's also a really bizarre vincent cam uh, vincent price cameo where he's basically standing in one spot for his whole role and it's it's just it just adds to the just weirdness of this just ridiculous movie that sounds great. I think I remember seeing you post on Letterboxd about it when you watched it, and it sounds really entertaining from the way you describe it. Yeah, it's just so strange. Uh, I, I hope people who like strange will check it out one of these days. Yeah, I do like that. And I love that. I mean, I, I imagine that that's, you know, very later in Vincent Price's uh, life and career. Mm-hmm. And I love movies like that now where it's like, we clearly had a tiny amount of money to get this famous person to show up. <laughs> right. And, you know, we shot the whole role while they were sitting in an office chair or whatever. And <laughs> we have that in movies now. And it's always entertaining to see. So funny. Well, yes. what do you got for number nine? 
So my number nine pick is The Right Stuff, directed by Philip Kaufman from 1983. And uh, I watched this movie because I reviewed the new Disney Plus series of The Right Stuff, uh, both of which are based on Tom Wolfe's nonfiction book about the early days of NASA. And the show is not great, um, but the movie is a lot of fun. And I had never seen it. It was, a, was a, I, I don't know if it, it maybe one best picture was won or nominated for a bunch of Oscars mm. in 1983. If this was awesome movie year, I would have looked up this information sure. properly. <laughs> but it was certainly a very, very well-known, well-regarded, successful uh, movie at the time. Um, but I never watched it and it never, it's very, very long. I think it's, it's like three hours or almost three hours long. It was never something that I felt like, uh, was on my radar particularly, but I'm glad I had the reason to watch it because it's so fun and weird in a way. I mean, you think that it would be this boring historical drama, which is a lot of what the miniseries, the new series turned out to be. Mm. Um, but it's got all of these really fun, charismatic performances, uh, Dennis Quaid, is is one of his earliest breakout roles. Um, and he's just so charming. And it's all about these cocky test pilots, you know, who were the early astronauts at NASA. And there are these guys who they don't, they're not holding sacred the idea of going into space and exploration and things like that, that you you have that sense of awe and wonder in movies about astronauts, I feel like now. And you have some of that in this movie too, but it's also just about these kind of shit-kicking army uh guys or or um Navy or Air Force guys, actually, maybe. I don't know military stuff. Sure. Military guys, you know, whose jobs have previously existed. Uh, it consisted of pushing themselves, like putting themselves in constant danger, you know? And so they really have that sense of recklessness and it captures that. It's funny, um, but it also gives you the real history of stuff. Um, and it includes an aspect of the story of the book that the the series, the new series, despite having more time, leaves out, which is... Uh, telling the story of Chuck Yeager, mm. who is, and just, just died recently, but was like the earliest, one of the earliest, most famous test pilots who decided not to join NASA because he thought this astronaut program was kind of a joke and then lost out on the opportunity to get the fame and fortune that these other guys got by being the first people in space. Um, but it uses that as kind of a counterpoint, like his sort of missed opportunity and him as this, this kind of lost icon of American masculinity and Sam Shepard plays him. And so it's got that extra element to it that the series loses out on. So it's very long. Uh, and I understand if people might think it's too much, but it's worth it. And it's, it's another thing I love is that after three hours, it ends on this kind of like weird, just anticlimactic note, like eh, we went to space. <laughs> and I like that about it. So the right stuff by Philip Kaufman. Nice, nice. Yeah, I have not seen it. I, I've heard really great things, and like it's come up as a puzzle piece a few times on piecing it together. And uh, yeah, it's it sounds like it's just a great take on uh, that kind of astronaut story, and like you know, keeping it fun and fresh from that point of view. Yeah, I think so. And it's you know, again, one of these movies that won a bunch of Oscars. You think it's going to be all stuffy, and it's really not. Right. Right. Well, I'll go for my number nine, which is a fairly recent movie from 2017, uh, Armando Iannucci's The Death of Stalin, which I had never gotten a chance to watch. It's it's a satire that imagines this power struggle amongst all these political figures after the death of Joseph Stalin. And 
it's just it's just such a silly fun little movie um all these actors are just relishing in the opportunity to play basically man children versions of these powerful people uh steve buscemi patty constantine uh, jason isaacs uh, jason isaacs they're all having just like so much fun with their roles and it, it's just this movie that like you're just watching it you just have this like silly smile on your face the whole time that it's unfolding and uh and another thing I liked about it is I am uh, not very good when it comes to history, but that does not uh, you know, make it difficult to follow whatsoever because it's still just a bunch of uh, men behaving badly and uh, being children, basically. Yeah, I haven't seen that uh, in part because I'm not really a fan of Armando Iannucci, uh, the whole, his whole political satire mode. Mm. I, I never really cared for uh, In the Loop or uh, Veep. But I will say I I did see, and I assume you probably did see as well, his David Copperfield movie yeah. this year, which is not cynical or, uh, you know, political really in any way. And I loved that. I thought that was so hopeful and endearing and charming. And so I don't think that any of his other stuff is like that, but I really enjoyed that movie. Yeah, that movie is so different from his other stuff. It's crazy that it's the same person. But uh, But yeah, it's very good, though. Yeah, so I recommend that one. Right. Unrelated. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Number eight. What do you got? So my number eight movie is also from 2017, you know, a more recent film. And uh, I love Christmas horror movies. Uh, if you uh, I've written about them in many different venues and including uh, I did a list uh, for how to geek, which is a website that I write for a lot about just how to watch various streaming things. And uh, I was excited to do a list about how to watch some Christmas horror movies because I could really recommend stuff. And this was one movie that I'd been meaning to get to, and it gave me the chance to watch it. It's called Anna and the Apocalypse from director John McPhail from 2017. And it is a Christmas-themed zombie teen musical. And so it's a lot of stuff combined that wouldn't necessarily work together, but it's great at all of that stuff. It's a great zombie horror movie. Uh, it's a great Christmas, a great, great Christmas horror movie. You know, I love when Christmas horror movies can incorporate like Christmas. Christmassy things into the horror. Mm -hmm. And the main character here for a long period has this like giant plastic or ceramic candy cane that she's using to bash zombies in the head with. <laughs> that is just a great image. But it's also a great teen coming of age story with a lot of uh, really sensitive, well-developed character arcs for these various teen characters that in this, this small town in Scotland. And it's a great musical full of these really catchy songs and Right all the way through. I mean, it starts and you have the characters singing about their their basic, you know, teen angst. But even as it gets into fighting zombies, they're singing as they're fighting the zombies and it never loses sight of being a musical. It's just super fun all around. Really good performances from a bunch of actors who were not known at the time. Uh, Ella Kemp is the main star who's gone on to do a few more things playing Anna. And uh, it just it's. It was one of those movies that, like you were saying about Dead Heat, or uh, it's like a smile on my face the whole time. Sure. It's like so much fun to watch. And I'm glad that it was something that had been on my list or in my queue on streaming for since it came out. And I'm glad I finally got a reason to watch it because it was just so much fun. I've never seen it. And it sounds like so much fun. And it also sounds like it would make a great Missing Pieces episode of this podcast to like look back at that. And because it sounds like it, it it's kind of takes influence from a whole lot of different places. Yeah, it does. I thought of it as like, it's like Glee meets uh, Shaun of the Dead. Nice. Uh, and I, I'm not really, Glee is, uh, but uh, <laughs> the better, 
the better aspects of that. Right. And it's original songs. They're not singing pop songs. They're all original songs written for this. So, uh, but it has that kind of Edgar Wrighty sensibility too. Nice. So for my number eight, uh, for anyone who listened to our top 10 films of the year episode knows how much I loved Bob Byington's Francis Ferguson. Uh, I've started going back to some of his other films. He has quite a few of them. And there's another one that I loved almost as much as Francis Ferguson. Uh, it's called Seven Chinese Brothers. It's from 2015. It stars Jason Schwartzman as this kind of like lovable loser type who very much like Francis Ferguson in Francis Ferguson just has no respect for any or anything is kind of just, you know, had it with the world and is a total pain in the ass. Uh, in this case, he's kind of more of a straight up dick more so than bored or anything like that. Uh, but Jason Schwartzman's character, he just kind of loves to prank people, but they're just not funny at all. And, uh, this is a movie that your enjoyment of is definitely going to depend on how much you can handle this character because he's just such a uh, just such an idiot. But if you if you you know get into this movie and get into this character and just just connect at least the way I did with how just ridiculous its point of view is. I think there's a lot of fun to be had, and he's got a dog, which is uh, a really great dog performance. Just throwing that out there as well. There's actually two really great dog performances on my list. So yeah, that's important. Yes. Eventually next year, you're going to do the uh, top 10 dogs of the year episode. I would, I I would love to do that. (laughs) Uh, I have not seen that movie, but based on your description and my experience watching Francis Ferguson, uh, I do not want to see that. I I could tell it's not for you for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what do you got for number seven? So my number seven is, I think, the only movie on this list that's like a straight up classic that I should have seen probably many, many years ago and had never seen before. And that is Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise, starring Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, which, again, another theme here for me a lot of times is I I watched this for an article that I was writing. Uh, In the before times, I wrote an article about road trip movies for a whole issue of a magazine about traveling. Weird, weird things that no longer exist. But um, (laughs) I watched this uh, as part of that because I knew it was a a major uh, movie in that sort of subgenre that I wanted to include. And I mean, it's a classic. It's a classic for a reason. So it's really funny and fun. I mean, for a movie about dark subject matter. I mean, there's, there's attempted rape and there's murder and there's, you know, criminals on the run, but it just has this, this joyous sense of these two characters who've cut themselves loose from their downtrodden lives Mm -hmm. and have found a way to give the middle finger to society and to the patriarchy, even though it's by committing all this violence in a way that's not going to end well for them. Right. And, you know, you, you, you root. And of course, everyone, even if you've never seen this movie, you know what the ending is because it's so iconic. Oh, so yeah. it's, I mean, not even like a spoiler to mention what the ending of this movie is. So, yeah, they're, they're not going to make it out alive. Um, and but, you know, that that sense of like just giving it everything that you have, because this is the last moment and, and only moment that you're going to have. Uh, is there and it's also like as much as it's 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 really like empowering it's also the fact that that the only way that they can screw the patriarchy is by ultimately like killing themselves is really quite dark as a message um 
So, but it mixes those things very well. And Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis are both spectacular. I feel like Gina Davis is someone who's underrated now. Susan Sarandon still gets a lot of great parts and a lot of acclaim, but Gina Davis, not as much, but they're both really, really good. And they have such good chemistry together. And of course it has one of Brad Pitt's first roles mm -hmm. as the uh, sleazy guy that they pick up and uh, he robs them, but also has sex with them. So it, it kind of, it kind of on balance, sure. you know, works out. Yeah, it works so, out for everyone. <laughs> uh, no, just, just a very entertaining movie. I feel like, you know, it's not the kind of movie that I need to like, what? I've never heard of this. But um, if you have heard of it, and especially if you know the ending, I feel like that's a lot of things, uh, something for classic movies. If you feel like, well, I know how it turns out, so I'm not going to watch, you know, I know what happens here, or I know what Rosebud is, so I'm not going to watch Citizen Kane right. or something like that. Like, you should still watch this movie. Yeah. Well, I... I'm not sure if I've ever actually seen it. Like you said, it's just so ingrained in pop culture. Like I know a lot of the big beats in it and the ending, of course, but uh, I may have to put it on the list of things to to double check anyway <laughs> to see if I've seen right. it. Right. I mean, it's one of those things that like we've talked about a lot in our 1984 season on Awesome Movie Year that was on TV and maybe you've seen bits and pieces of it. It's it's permeates, so you don't really, you're, you don't have a sense of whether you've seen it or not. But if you haven't, there's a lot to discover there in the, the lesser, the non-iconic moments. So speaking of the 1984 season of Awesome Movie Year, my, oh, yeah. my number seven is a movie that I liked a little more than you and your co-host Jason Harris. It's Vim Vendor's Paris, Texas, a movie that has Harry Dean Stanton, Harry Dean Stantoning through the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, yes, indeed. It, I mean, it's, it's a classic, and I, I understand for people who don't like it, like, that it is slow and it, it, it is, uh, you know, I guess it could be described as meandering, but there's some element to it of the mystery of the whole thing of this character who's just found out walking around in Texas and he doesn't know where, why he's out there. We don't know why he's out there. And slowly but surely it is revealed this very dark, impossible to have guessed uh, story of what has happened to this character. There, there's just... There's so much to that that I was surprised each step of the way, and it just kept me going the whole time. And aside from that, I mean, it's just it's beautiful to look at. I mean, it just it looks fantastic. And there's just a lot of uh, really interesting things happening with the performances outside of Harry Dean Stanton as well. And th there's just a lot of this movie that I really, truly loved. And uh, I, I think it's a classic for a reason. Yeah, I mean, we went through in that episode, uh, both Jason and I, about why we didn't really care for it. But certainly your perspective is the more common. One. Right. I think we got, I had multiple people in my life kind of shaming me for not liking that movie after we put out our episode, including one person who turned off the episode in disgust oh, no. after 10 minutes. So, uh, you know, maybe they would have preferred if you uh, took the lead there. But um, I, I will say, yeah, I mean, I don't need to go over what I what didn't work for me, but I will say I agree with you on the look of it. It does it looks beautiful. We talked a lot about Robbie Muller, the cinematographer, and how great a job he did there. So that is certainly true. Yeah. So uh, what do you got for number six? So my number six film is going going from a, a well-known classic to something very obscure. Uh, it is a movie from 1971 by director John D. Hancock called Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which is one of the all-time great horror movie titles. And I'm pretty sure that was the primary reason that I wanted to watch it. Uh, it was on the Criterion channel, and it may still be on the Criterion channel uh, as part of a program of uh, kind of 
underground-y 70s horror, which is something that I like anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but based on the title and based on that designation, you'd expect this movie to be something very different from what it actually is. And it's really more of this like slow burn psychological thriller about this woman, uh, Jessica, played by Zora Lampert, who I was not familiar with, but is really good in the in this movie. And she's just been released from a mental institution for uh, TBD reasons, but obviously is not quite stable. And her husband and their best friend, they pick her up and they decide they're going to kind of get this new start by moving to this farmhouse in Connecticut and they're they're it's 1971 so they're they're super hippies mm-hmm. and you know start almost like this commune and they arrive in this little town that is super creepy and all the like old men who live in the town give them these glares and it's already just got this very like unsettling like something is not right tone and then when they get to the house there's this drifter who is living there, a squatter, because the house has been empty. Mm -hmm. And they just befriend her and decide to let her stay. And she seems like she's kind of hippie-ish too. But then obviously something else is going on with her and there's a dark history to this house and everyone in the town is very suspicious of them and suspicious of the house. And so it's kind of a haunted housey story, but also about this mysterious woman in the house. But really what it's about is Jessica kind of losing her grip on reality and this kind of gaslighting that goes on is that because she was just in this mental institution, when she says, no, supernatural shit is going down, everyone's like, oh, uh-huh, sure, of course. Right. And it's just very moody and atmospheric. And there's not a lot of scares in it, but it just gives you this sense of wrongness mm-hmm. that I really liked. And it has this, this kind of ethereal narration to it. And it's one of these movies that opens and ends kind of on the same moment. And it's it's unresolved. And it's unclear sort of what is going to happen to anyone in this movie and, and in like life as it ends. And it just really envelops you in a mood. So I like that one a lot. It was a it's a kind of cult classic that was avail- unavailable for a really long time. And now, you know, Criterion has brought it out and uh, hopefully more people will see it. Well, the description sounds great, but you could have just said the title and I would have accepted it on this list because that's a great title. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's a great title. And, my, and I, I, I think it is a fantastic title. And my only caveat is that the movie that you think you're getting from that title is not what you're getting, but you're getting something better. Awesome. Awesome. Well, for my number six, I actually have a tie. Uh, for Oh, unfair. It's a good reason, though. Okay. Because in 2013, uh, Denis Villeneuve, which I probably should have looked up how to pronounce that name better. How do you pronounce his name, Josh? I think it's Villeneuve because it's uh, French, French-Canadian. Yeah, Villeneuve. Released two movies that I somehow didn't see then and didn't see until this year, Enemy and Prisoners. Um, two movies that are right up my alley, uh, the, the exact kind of thing that I love to see, and I just I just let them go unwatched. But then on my birthday this year, we rented a house with a home theater, and I made a big list of movies to watch. Some of were my you know all-time favorites, and some were things I've always wanted to watch and never got around to, and we watched both of those back-to-back. And uh, I, I loved both of them. Enemy more so than Prisoners, but uh, they're both great. Enemy with two Jake Gyllenhaals, uh, just a kind of weird, you know, head trip of a movie that I'm not 100% sure if I even fully understand yet at this point, but one day I will. Uh, And Prisoner's just a really good tour de force performance from Hugh Jackman and Paul Dano that just really going head to head and uh, a a good story kind of felt like a little bit like a, uh, I don't know, like 
like an HBO miniseries or something like that turned into a movie. But I mean, a good HBO miniseries turned into a movie. Uh, but both very good movies from a great director that I really have no idea how I didn't watch before, but I finally got him watched this year. All right. Well, I suppose that's fair. They do connect. Right. And uh, also connect in that I don't like. Them. But uh, <laughs> I don't No, I think that's weird because I, it was from a period where Denis, when he made a lot of movies like those, especially like Prisoners, which is like super dark and super serious mm -hmm. and super long. And I just found I find those kinds of movies just like insufferable a lot because I think they're just like taking themselves so seriously. And I've I've enjoyed his more recent movies, I think when he's worked in a more like pulpy blockbuster mode. I mean, I like Sicario a lot. I like Arrival. Mm -hmm. I like uh, Blade Runner 2049. I'm looking forward to Dune. But I think his more like uh, contained, like serious dramas just do not work for me. I'll definitely but take Sicario say, over any of them. But Yeah. No, I love Sicario. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Those are all good. It's just the earlier films and like uh, Encendie, which was his big breakout, you know, which is a French in, in French, but, you know, got an Oscar nomination, I think. And is just dreadful as far as I'm concerned <laughs> with one of these is one of these movies that has these plot twists where it's like the characters are miserable and the twist is they're even more miserable for an even more ridiculous reason i gotta write um, i gotta write down that movie i might like it yeah maybe you'd like <laughs> people people really like it so maybe check that out but um i do i do like the giant spider in enemy spoiler i guess i don't even know what it means I, but it's cool. you could spoil that it would not change a thing seriously yes. <laughs> so true all right what do you got for number five so number five is a movie like thematically that weirdly connects although i hadn't realized how many thematic connections i ended up with here but it connects to let's scare jessica to death it's called home before dark from 1958 by director mervyn Leroy. And uh, this is a movie that I watched because I wrote uh, in October when Rhonda Fleming passed away, uh, who is a classic Hollywood actor and uh, was connected to Las Vegas. And so I wrote a, a kind of a tribute to her. And I watched a bunch of Rhonda Fleming movies in a short period of time. And this is a movie that she has said was her favorite role, although she's not the main star of it. Uh, Gene Simmons is not Gene Simmons from Kiss, of course, but <laughs> Gene Simmons, J-E-A-N Simmons, is is the star of this. And like Let's Scare Jessica to Death, it's about a woman who's just been released from a mental institution and is trying to readjust. And she has all these family around her who are helping her, but really are kind of just condescending to her and gaslighting her and not trusting her when she says things about her own life. And this is not a horror movie. Uh, it's a more of like a psychodrama and the things that she's uh, talking about are not ghosts. They're the fact that her husband is probably cheating on her mm -hmm. and that her family is trying to cheat her out of her inheritance. And Rhonda Fleming plays her stepsister, who's a, a schemer. And it's a decent performance from Rhonda Fleming. But Gene Simmons really carries this movie is just such a fantastic performance. And it's the kind of thing that in 1958 would be thought of as like, quote, a women's picture and could be really melodramatic, but she plays it. It's not just she underplays it, but she just plays it with the right amount of seriousness and sensitivity. And this is a movie that is remarkably progressive about mental illness and about the treatment of people with mental illness for the time period. And I mean, she's the hero, she's the main character, but it's not about, oh, she's hysterical and she needs to be kind of put in her place. Like she is right. And she mm -hmm. is the one who is being mistreated and ultimately is vindicated by the end. So it's just a very effective drama shot gorgeously in black and white. 
Um, so that's uh, Home Before Dark from 1958. Right on. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of the movie, but it sounds great. And it is interesting, that theme. I mean, we had that this year with Invisible Man. I mean, I'm sure that was kind of in the air for you. Yeah, I guess it was. And I hadn't even thought about it, even though I'd watched both of these movies. Um, but when I was putting this together and there's one more actually that's coming with a similar theme. So, which again, totally unexpected. Nice. So, uh, my number five comes also from awesome movie year. It is three women, from Robert Altman. It's my first Robert Altman movie that I've watched, uh, from 1977. And, uh, you know, I've always heard his name, you know, thrown around as one of the big influences for Paul Thomas Anderson. And you know how much I love Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. And, this is basically like getting a whole new Paul Thomas Anderson movie <laughs> because it's like exactly the kind of thing he's made over these last uh, 15, 20 years. And, you, you know, it's a very weird story about these three women whose personalities, their identities seem to be kind of uh, uh, interchanging in a way. Uh, it's got these great performances, Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek. Um, and it's uh, it's just a weird movie, one that, it's the kind of movie that really, as soon as the the credits roll, you do not stop thinking about it for a while after that. I, I thought about it all night that night for weeks after, and it just kind of just washing around in your brain, just trying to figure out what is going on here. But there's just so much interesting stuff happening and so much to dig into. It's just really my kind of movie. Yeah, I like that movie, and I had seen it already, so it wouldn't qualify for this list. Mm -hmm. um, but I was glad when we did that episode that it really like that it spoke to you so much. And that was a movie that I think the first time I saw it, I liked it, but I was a little—I mean, I was baffled by it. And I think it was—I expected something else for some reason based on other Altman movies that I've seen. Sure. Um, and I think I appreciated it a little more this time. We talked about this in the episode. Um, you know, I think I, I, I knew better what to expect from it and I was able to get on its wavelength uh, a little more. So, yeah, that's a good one. And sort of I, I don't know if it's maybe not anymore an underrated Altman movie because I feel like it's really gotten a lot of attention um, in more recent years. But still, if people have seen stuff like The Player or uh, Gosford Park or whatever and want to delve a little more deeply into Altman, that's a good one to check out. Awesome. Well, what do you got for number four? So we'll go back to awesome movie year. And uh, my number four pick was from our 1996 season. It's Mike Lee's Secrets and Lies, uh, which was the Cannes Palme d'Or winner in that year. And that was why we talked about it. And I've seen a few other Mike Lee movies and I, I always enjoy his films. I think he is a brilliant and a very unique kind of filmmaker. We talked about his process. That is something that I, I don't know if anyone else really quite does the way he develops characters through improvisation and works with the actors you know, from the earliest stages of creating a film. And I think that always leads to these characters that feel really well-rounded, that feel like they have so much depth to their lives beyond what we're seeing on screen. Mm. And this is a movie that has a story that could easily be a kind of sensationalistic, like, lifetime movie story. is about this middle-class or upper-middle-class black woman who decides to seek out her birth mother, and it turns out to be this working-class white woman who has kept it a secret uh, all these years that she had a child. And it's about the way that uh, Hortense, played by Marianne Jean-Baptiste, tries to integrate herself back into the life of her mother, played by Brenda Blethyn, both of whom were multi-awarded and nominated for this movie, and deservedly so. And again, it could be sensationalistic, but it's just this very rich and layered portrayal of a complicated family. We've also got 
Brenda Blethyn's brother, played by Timothy Small, and her other daughter, who is acknowledged and who's lived with her for her whole life and also has to kind of integrate this whole concept into her sense of existence. And it's just really sensitive. And anytime I feel like it could go in this like ultra melodramatic direction, it takes you in a different direction that's even more rewarding. This was from uh, just before I started trying to make sure I watched every awesome movie here, <laughs> movie. So I have not seen it, uh, but I probably should. Yeah, I would recommend it or any. I mean, if you haven't seen Mike Lee films, um, you know, Happy Go Lucky or Mr. Turner or there's tons. I mean, he's just a great filmmaker. Yeah. So I will go for my number four. Uh, I just realized I have back-to-back movies from the 1977 awesome movie year season. It's, uh, it was a great season. It really awesome was. Season, it yeah. was an awesome season. Uh, this, this was probably the biggest surprise movie of the year overall for me. New movies, old movies. It's Saturday Night Fever from John Badham. And I... I, you know, I think everybody thinks they know what this movie is, uh, and, you know, you think it's just disco dancing and, you know, John Travolta dancing to the Bee Gees in that white suit, and, like, you, you get into it, and it's this incredibly fucked up, dark, weird movie. Uh, these characters are just absolute pieces of shit, and, you know, by the time you get towards the end, and they're gang raping a girl in the back of their car, well, I mean, it's absolutely an insane movie, and I cannot believe that this is, like, one of those classics that everybody's mom claims to love, but, of course, as we talked about, there's that TV edit, which is probably what most people are watching. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, for such a dark movie, for this to be such a dark movie was just such a huge surprise, and it's also really good. Like, I, I just think that the story is really interesting. I think that the uh, you know, the, the connection between all the characters is really interesting to watch, like, and, and how this, like, they're almost like a gang in a way, you know, and how, how they interact and all that. And then on top of all that, the dance scenes really are great, just like you've always thought they would probably be. I mean, they're shot so uh, exciting and, and uh, just visually just cool to watch. Um, it really is the dance movie that you expected it to be. So, I mean, this movie is just great on so many levels. Yeah, it's really good. I liked it. I not quite as much as you did, but I certainly enjoyed it and and also felt like it was a surprise as to how complex and dark it is and uh and it works though. I mean, mm-hmm. the combination of the disco dancing and those serious heavy storylines, I mean, the way that going to the disco and dancing is an escape for these characters from their kind of dead-end lives, like it all makes sense and it all fits together. So, um yeah, I I I liked it. I think the darkness maybe gets a little overdone towards the end and we talked about this in our suicide yeah yeah but but overall like i i definitely thought i thought it was quite good and i i was impressed with how different it is from from what people think of it so uh yeah another one that i think if you're like oh i know what that is again like like thelma and louise or something like right you know you maybe don't like watch it anyway right for sure so number three what do you got So number three is a movie that I hadn't realized until I was making this list that is also directed by Mervyn Leroy, who is an incredibly versatile and prolific director. So uh, Home Before Dark is from 1958, and this movie is from 25 years earlier and could not be more different, is Gold Diggers of 1933 from, of course, 1933, and is a pre-code musical. And I love pre-code movies. Uh, For people who are not familiar, these are movies that came out Uh, In like the early 1930s, in the period between when sound movies started and when the Hayes Code was implemented in 1934 that basically sanitized everything. 
and was the the regulation for movies from 1934 until I think maybe 1968 when the MPAA was formed and the rating system was created. Mm. And during that period, like everything was essentially G or PG rated. Um, mm. But there was this brief period from like 30 or 29 to 34 where movies were not censored and there's so much stuff that you never think of being in old movies that are in movies from this period. Wow. And they're always fun to watch. So this movie is, I mean, it's, it's naughty in sort of an insinuating way and, and it's a musical. So it's, it's really big and fun. And, but it's also about the depression. Uh, it's about these four dancers um, played by uh, Ruby Keeler, Joan Blondell, Aileen McMahon, and Ginger Rogers, who is so good in everything, but also here, um, who are kind of uh, down on their luck as everyone is. And all the you know shows are getting canceled during the Depression because no one has any money. So it's this big, like, let's put on a show kind of musical. They get an idea and they try to get the financing together. And there's a whole silly romance subplot about uh, Ruby Keeler's character falling in love with this rich heir who's slumming it because he wants to be a composer. And his his family opposes him getting married to this chorus girl. And then his snooty brother, played by Warren William, who always plays great snooty characters, comes in and he tries to sabotage the marriage. But then he falls in love with one of the other chorus girls. And it's super silly, but it's just so sharp and so witty and so well acted. I mean, it's full of these great comic lines and also full of these incredible musical set pieces that were choreographed mm. by Busby Berkeley, who of course is an amazing talent. Um, it's the it's the source of the song, We're in the Money, which people know, even though they don't know where it's from, huh. which is the opening number of this. And it features Ginger Rogers singing in pig Latin. So that alone should make it worth watching. Uh, this is another one I watched on the Criterion channel. I don't know if it's still there, but. Uh, I think it's, it's, they show it on TCM all the time. It's a well-known film, um, Gold Diggers of 1933. Sounds absolutely wild. And uh, another addition to your list of some really interesting titles on your list, for sure. Yeah, I try to keep it uh, varied. Yeah, I like <laughs> it. So uh, my number three is a pretty recent movie, uh, 2018. Uh, it's Thunder Road from Jim Cummings, uh, which is honestly one of the best movies I've seen in the last few years. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I missed it. I didn't even really know about it. I think I had seen the title at some point, but I really like liked the look of the poster and the trailer for The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And so I was looking forward to that, even though I didn't know anything about Jim Cummings. And I watched it and it's very good. Like, you know, it didn't make my top 10 or anything, but it's a very good movie. But uh, immediately after I was like, well, I see he did this Thunder Road movie. I'm going to watch it. And I was just, fucking blown away um it's just like such a roller coaster about this cop who is just kind of like on the verge of a you know like a men mental breakdown or midlife crisis after a divorce and his his uh i think it's his dad dying or his mom dying i forget exactly but um uh yeah, it's just, it's, it's funny, but it's really dark and it's really heavy, but it's also back to being funny because it's so damn dark and so heavy. And, uh, he just does this character so damn well. And, and I will say it's, uh, very easy to criticize the fact that he did two movies back to back where he's a cop on the verge of a mental breakdown, but, uh, you know, his next movie is going to be completely different from what I've seen. So, uh, I, I look forward to seeing him stretch out a little bit more, but, uh, still this movie is just absolutely fantastic. And the whole story of the Bruce Springsteen song that is based on that, the, uh, the, the, the short was based around and then they couldn't get, 
you know, the rights to it and all is very funny. Just like adds another layer to how good this movie is, I think. Yeah, I like that movie. This was actually on my list, not my regular top 10 list, but on my my this list uh-huh. um, uh, maybe last year because I hadn't seen it right when it first came out and I caught up with it the following year. Nice. Um, and yeah, it's a really great. And like you said, this sort of mix of it's like funny and dark and you're laughing at this guy as he's having a mental breakdown. Yeah. But um, and uh, yeah, it's great. And I I don't know if you've seen the short. I think it's pretty easy to watch online. I haven't but... yet. I want to, though. Yeah, it's interesting, the contrast, because I had seen the short at a film festival before the feature existed. Mm-hmm. And so having watched that as a self-contained short, and as you, it's about him at the funeral of his mother, and he talks about how his mother loved Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. And in the short, he plays Thunder Road. He plays the song on a like a tape player, mm-hmm. and you hear it, and he does a little, a, like a dance to it that's extremely awkward. And in the feature, that's the opening scene and they didn't get the rights. And so he doesn't play and he just like sings the song and it's even more awkward. <laughs> but I just I remember either either way, it's this great self-contained bit and it's done in a single shot. And I remember seeing the short and thinking that was great. And then reading that they're going to make that into a feature and thinking, I don't see how they can right. make how, more of that. How could that be possible? <laughs> right, right. But he really expands it in a really clever way. So uh, I still haven't seen The Wolf of Snow Hollow, but I definitely want to. Yeah, it, it's it's fun. It's good. Yeah. So uh, what do you got for number two? So my number two pick is the only movie that I watched twice in 2020 um, for uh, mainly for work purposes. Uh, It is Douglas McGrath's version of Emma starring Gwyneth Paltrow from uh, 1996, although we did not talk about it on Awesome Movie Year, but it is from that year. Mm -hmm. And I initially watched it because the new version of Emma starring uh, Anya Taylor-Joy was released early this year and I was anticipating reviewing it. And so I wanted to watch this uh, famous version. And I loved this one so much that I think it might actually have tainted my potential appreciation of the new one, which I was disappointed in because I was so taken with this version from 1996. And I think in part, because again, I had no expectations. I thought, I don't know, this is some nineties movie with Gwyneth Paltrow, whatever. And Gwyneth Paltrow is so good in this movie. It is so smart and so witty and so emotionally satisfying to watch her as this Jane Austen character, Emma Woodhouse. And the way, and Douglas McGrath, who's not a notable director in any way, he's kind of a minor actor. He, this I believe was his first film as a director and his career has been pretty spotty since then, but he just gets it exactly right with that tone of, of whimsy and wit, but also like it's sarcastic, but you also need to buy into all the romances mm. and care about them and want them to work out and yet also be kind of laughing at the characters. And I thought that was just done really, really well. Tony Collette is great as the kind of awkward woman that Emma takes under her wing and is going to be the matchmaker for And so I love this movie so much and Gwyneth Paltrow's performance in it so much that it made me really like reevaluate my entire sense of Gwyneth Paltrow, who we think of now as just this like lame, out of touch, rich person who peddles vagina candles or whatever, (laughs) and nobody takes her seriously or respects her at all. Um, But in the 90s, she was just on fire as an actor. And so I thought about other Gwyneth Paltrow 90s movies that I had already seen, like The Talented Mr. Ripley Amazing. and Shakespeare in Love mm-hmm. and Great Expectations. And so I wanted to pitch an article about how great she was in the 90s. Um, and so I did that. And this was like my big project for the year. And I think I pitched it to six different outlets before I finally found someone who would publish this article. 
And so when I was writing that, I went back and watched Emma again. And even though I had just seen it within a month or two, I loved it again. Wow. So not the kind of thing. Again, I think this is something that people would look at and be like, I don't know. It's just some random 90s thing. It's not nothing. Like there was a bunch of Jane Austen in the 90s. You know, there was Clueless, which is also based on Emma. Um, and, you know, Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth and whatever. But watch it. It's so good. <laughs> You know, it's actually on our list of things to watch. We almost watched it just like a week or two ago. It's so funny. But uh, but yeah, people should check out that article that you did because uh, that was great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's Vague Visages. Uh, thank you to Quinn Huff, the editor, who finally <laughs> was like, okay, you can write this weird-ass article. <laughs> right. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's so funny. All right. Number two for me is Blue Ruin from Jeremy Saulnier from 2013, which is a movie I've been wanting to watch ever since I saw Green Room in 2015, which is just so fucking good. And I had heard that his previous film was so damn good as well. And for some strange reason, I thought that that movie was The Ruins, that movie where they like get stuck going into like a Mayan temple or something like that. The evil, the evil plants, the, the mind controlling plants. Yes, which that I kind of like that movie actually, but that's never not never saw it. that either. But uh, so that's kind of what scared me away. But I'm so glad I finally watched this movie because it's just as good as everyone made it out to be. I actually watched it right after watching Murder Party for uh, Awesome Movie Year, but. Um, yeah, this movie is just, I mean, talk about, you know, tension and like just revenge movies in general. This is just such a good revenge movie. Uh, Makem Blair, who's in all of Sonya's movies, I believe, uh, is fantastic. It's just so like darkly funny and uh, just uh, every scene is just like a masterclass in, in this kind of movie. And then straight up until the very end, which I just think is just pitch perfect, that ending um, this is just a great, great movie. And I, I guess I have to listen to people when they tell me that it's, you know, to watch movies because <laughs> sometimes people are right. Yeah. As I'm sure I was one of the people telling you to watch that because I was on that train for that movie really early on. Cause I saw it at, uh, nice. at AFI fest when it showed there, uh, in 2013, or maybe it was even in 2012. It's like the end of 2012. I don't know, but whatever it was. It was playing the festival circuit and I didn't really know anything about it. And I went in to see it and just was so amazed. And uh, Jeremy Sonier was there talking about it. And so from that moment on, I was just telling everyone how great it was. And it ended up, I think it was a number one on my list, my regular top 10 list that year. Mm. And yeah, that's a fantastic movie. And he's really talented and he's gone on to do uh, great stuff. Green, green Room, as you re as you mentioned. And I, I like Hold the Dark too, his most that's recent good. film. Yeah. But, um, but Blue Ruin... Easily the best thing he's done. So, so good. And uh, I'm glad you watched it. Awesome. So number one, what do you got? So my number one film is another movie about a potentially mentally unstable woman who is being dismissed by the people around her. See it a trend is, here. Yes, there you go. Exactly. And again, not one that I had anticipated. And I watched all these movies for completely different reasons. And this was just a movie that I randomly that it was in my my Netflix DVD queue, which is still a thing that I have, and it just kind of came mm. up as the next thing. It's uh, The Innocence from 1961, directed by Jack Clayton. And it's also kind of relevant for this year because it's an adaptation of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, which was twice adapted in 2020, uh, first into the movie The Turning with Mackenzie oh, Davis boy. from the very beginning of the year, which is not good at all. Um, and then also The Haunting of Bly Manor, the um, Netflix miniseries that a lot of people really like from Mike Flanagan, which I have not watched. 
But both of those are based on the turn of the screw. Um, this, I would venture to say, even not having watched The Haunting of Bly Manor, is by far the best adaptation of The Turn of the Screw. Uh, Deborah Kerr is the star of this version uh, and is so, so, so good as the governess who comes to this remote estate to take care of these two children who are orphans and are uh, nominally the uncle, their uncle is their guardian, but he doesn't want anything to do with them. So he hires this governess and he's not there. Um, and she starts seeing maybe ghosts or maybe she's just kind of losing it because she's a woman, you know, and that, <laughs> right. was, that was what we, she's a single woman uh, in the 19th century, you know, so she must be insane. Um, but the way that this movie captures that like uncertainty of are there ghosts or is she going crazy? And, and if she's going crazy, like for good reason, you know, these children are weird and they're kind of messing with her and everyone there is just giving her these wrong, these vasica to death. It's like something is not right here and whatever it is, it's not okay. And why will not anyone believe me that something is not right here? So it really builds that suspense and that tension. Right. And again, the, the performance from Deborah Kerr is so, so good. Um, and also the two kids who are actors who I don't know what they went on to, but Mar Martin Stevens and Pamela Franklin are the names of these child actors um, who really give you that. And one of the things in this story is these kids are sort of like disturbingly grown up. And I think that's a really tough thing for a child actor to play and for it to be believable. And they do a really good job of that. Right. Um, the other thing about this movie is that it looks gorgeous. Hmm. It is shot in CinemaScope, which you would not think of for a movie that is basically just takes place in a house. Yeah. But uh, Freddie Francis, who's the cinematographer who went on to be a director of a lot of like Hammer movies and cool horror movies, um, just finds these amazing compositions to give you the sense of this house like sort of swallowing her up in a way and the way that she feels overwhelmed and it really uses um, the, the visuals and also the sound design in this movie to just immerse you in the world of this woman who is slowly being driven mad by something. Mm. So it was definitely my favorite movie of the year of any movie, you know, yeah. better than any new movie that I saw this year as well. So, um, I, I, I mean, this is how stingy I am with my star ratings, not counting movies that I had already seen before. There were two movies that I saw in 2020 that I gave four stars. Wow. One was Dreamland, which was my number one new movie of the year. Uh -huh. And one was this. Wow. So there you go. Very good. Very good. Well, yeah, I've never seen it, but uh, it, it feels like from everything you're saying about it and knowing about that story, it seems like a movie I should watch because it would be a puzzle piece for like nine out of 10 new horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. It's, it's clearly very influential. And Jack Clayton is another director who he made other movies, but he didn't really have the career that you might have thought he would based on this film. But it's yeah, it's certainly influential. And the story is still being told right. over and over again. Yeah. But I will uh, I will skip the turning, though. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I saw that in a theater. You know, thank goodness the theater experience so rare now. And I managed to see the turning in a theater. And that was the wrong choice. <laughs> well, my number one is a movie that I really hope to get to see in a theater one day. Um. And I, I may be cheating here because I might have seen it as a teenager, but I really don't think I did. I really think it was my first time watching this back in January. And I actually watched this twice this year. Uh, it's John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. Uh, of course, I was so aware of many of the great 
uh, creature effects, practical effects scenes in this. You know, I, I saw John Carpenter live uh, at the Hard Rock a few years back, and they had scenes of it playing in the background. And and of course, I've seen clips elsewhere over the years. Um, so certainly, I was aware of a lot of the things that happened in this movie, but I don't think I had ever actually sat down and watched it. And it's just awesome. It's it's so beautiful. I mean, those snowy landscape shots are just so just gorgeous. And then once you get into the insides and the tension and the uh, you know that that just like that tense feeling of like not knowing who is who and all that stuff that he just so expertly uh, uh, you know creates. Which you know it's funny because you know you always think of him like yeah he's uh, you know what they call him, like king of horror or whatever. But you think of usually of the effects and stuff like that. You don't think of that tension. But I mean yeah I mean he's that too. And uh, so th- there's just so much going at just firing at at 100% and uh you know the score of course is amazing um it, it gets so super weird at times uh Kurt Russell's freaking great and everybody else too is so great in it uh I I will say the ending I'm not 100% sold on once they get underground and the whole confrontation but uh other than that though this movie is freaking perfect and I, I said there's another dog performance on my list. Uh, <laughs> this is the single probably best dog performance ever. Unless, wow. unless, actually, now I think about it, the dog from Independence Day. But this is the second best dog performance ever. So, Wow. Yeah. Take that, Lassie and Benji and Rin Tin Tin. Screw those dogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great movie. I, I've seen it, I'm sure, probably multiple times. And actually, this year, I wrote an article... Uh, defending the sort of remake slash prequel from 2011. I've I've heard uh, a few with, people defending it lately. Yeah, I like that movie with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. If you haven't seen it, check it out. And it actually connects a lot to the Carpenter movie. And so I watched as I was writing, I kind of was like skimming through the Carpenter movie and I didn't watch it in full mm-hmm. again. But yeah, it's, it's, it's great. And uh, yeah, I have nothing but good things. And it actually did play at the drive-in over Halloween. Oh, wow. I almost went to see it. But I, it was weirdly like right after I had just watched those parts of it. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go do that again. Yeah. But, um, you know, you missed your chance to see it uh, at the drive-in. Well, let's, let, let's be hopeful. <laughs> yes. Maybe someday you go inside to a theater and they'll show it. Certainly the kind of thing that theaters will show again around Halloween. Yeah. In one of those movies. Yeah. I would think so. So, uh, yeah, that, I think this is a, a really interesting list of movies, our, our, our 20 movies here. Uh, but do you have some honorable mentions you wanted to uh, throw out there? Yeah, well, one is one that I thought maybe you would put on your list, although maybe you had already seen it. And it's another awesome movie year movie from our 1984 season, uh, Beverly Hills Cop by Martin Brest, which I had not seen, although I had seen Beverly Hills Cop 3. <laughs> uh, and, and so that, that was a bad start. But uh, it's just a really, really entertaining, fun, mainstream action comedy. Eddie Murphy is so charming in it. And it's just like enjoyable to watch all the way. And one of the themes of Awesome Movie Year in 84 was like the new development of comedy plus action or comedy plus horror. And it does that really well, balancing those two things. So that movie, a lot of fun. Yeah. And the other honorable mention uh, that almost was on my list is uh, Dark Water, the uh, Hideo Nakata original from 2002, the Japanese film. Mm-hmm. And I put, I wrote another article this year defending a remake. It was about the American remake of Dark Water uh, with Jennifer Connelly, which I actually think is a little better, but that <laughs> I had already seen. Um, but in prep, in preparation for writing that, I, I watched the original 
and is quite good too. I think if you like J-horror, uh, if you like stuff like The Ring, and I also watched the the original Jew on the Grudge this year, which is completely an incoherent mess, <laughs> and Darkwater is much better. So if you're curious about those, I think it was, it was on Amazon Prime when I watched it, and uh, it's a cool kind of underrated movie in the, in the Japanese horror canon. Not a big fan of those movies, uh, but Beverly's Cop is very fun, though. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, for my honorable mentions, I have, uh, well, I've got two uh, awesome movie or movies. One you already mentioned, Pumping Iron. Uh, the other one is Eraserhead, uh, a- another movie that I may have seen in bits and pieces uh, over the years, but I don't think I ever sat and watched. Um, but yeah. Fucking weird movie, and <laughs> it's pretty damn cool. Uh, and then one other honorable mention, a little movie you may have heard of called Citizen Kane that I watched uh, in preparation for Mank. Uh, turns out is pretty good. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and that's one of those movies I think that I was that I was saying, and you're you're being sarcastic, like, oh, Citizen Kane. But lots of people have never seen Citizen Kane, yeah. and if you think like I already know, like, no, watch Citizen Kane. It's good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> And uh, Eraserhead, that, I feel like like Paris, Texas, that's a movie that that we, Jason and I, didn't quite appreciate uh, the way that you did. Yeah, so. yeah, and and I didn't I didn't like it like as much as that, but um, but yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting movie. Let's just say that it is an interesting movie and something that I didn't really like, but I'm glad that I saw. It. <laughs> right, for sure. So uh, just to finish this conversation up, I thought it would be fun uh, to bring up one movie that we watched this year that wasn't a first time watch, but something you either hadn't seen in a long, long time, or maybe didn't give it its due a while back when you first saw it and you, you finally rewatched it this year. What do you have for something like that? So, yeah, I was kind of uh, going back and forth on a few things, but my, my choice for this is going to be uh, nightmare on Elm street, three dream warriors, nice. um, which is, I had a kind of a weird journey because like I saw it as a kid and I think it might have been the one Nightmare on Elm Street movie I saw first uh, because it's like a almost like a superhero movie. And, right. uh, you know, I, I was into comic books and stuff. And so I liked it then. And then I had revisited it at some point uh, a number of years ago. And I was like, ah, this is not that great. And then I watched it again this year because I wrote a piece on Heather Langenkamp as Nancy in the three Nightmare on Elm Street movies and sort of the journey of that character and the journey of her performance and I just really appreciated it on that level. Like if you watch, weirdly, if you make, if you pretend the series is just Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors, New Nightmare, and you watch the journey of Heather Langenkamp and the journey of Nancy, it's really fascinating. And I think when I watched it that way, Dream Warriors really clicked for me. Hmm. And the way that Nancy is sort of this haunted figure from her experiences in the first movie, and she's trying to not... She's trying to guard the next generation of of kids from experiencing what she experienced and her sort of successes and failures at that. And Heather Langenkamp is great in all these movies. Um, and I, I had a new appreciation for her in this one. So, uh, yeah, so that's my pick. I like it. I'm uh, I, Earlier this year, I did a uh, uh, Friday the 13th uh like marathon and I'm planning on one day this year doing Nightmare on Elm Street. So I look forward to getting to that one. Yeah, there's uh, overall the Nightmare on Elm Street series has a much higher level of quality, I think, than the Friday the Thirteenth series. We shall see. I am I am a Jason guy, so we shall see. Yeah, all right, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, so for mine, I am going to go with Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I 
love Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I've seen it many, many times, but I always remember seeing Bogus Journey as a, you know, I guess I would have been 11 at the time and just walking out of the theater so upset that that it was just the worst movie. And like, what did they do to Bill and Ted, you know? Uh, and I never returned to it. I never watched it again. And then I finally watched it in anticipation of the new one, Face the Music. And I almost maybe liked it more than the original. <laughs> I just thought it was so fun, so ridiculous, so out there. Um, it, it really embraces its, you know, anything goes like comic book kind of nature of the of the series, which, you know, was really only the second one at that point. But uh, it's basically like a living, breathing cartoon and is so all over the place. Uh, but I absolutely loved it. I, I love Station. I love Death, of course. Everyone loves Death, even if you don't like the movie. Uh, and, and I love Evil Bill and Ted. I, I just There's so much in that movie that, although I'm sure you know, plenty of people don't give it a second chance or maybe did and just still don't like it, uh, I, I loved it the second time around. Yeah, I also revisited it this year because of the new one coming out, and I hadn't seen it in a while, probably not as long as you. I think I'd seen it at some point since it was out in theaters. But I, I you know, it's an interesting. I don't hate it, mm-hmm. but and I and I appreciate what you're talking about, the way it just kind of goes for all the weirdness. Yeah. Um, but I just I love the first one so much. And I feel like the first one is such a pure concept. Oh, yeah. That bogus journey is just like they're going for everything in part because it feels like they don't know what to do <laughs> and how to make another Bill and Ted movie. So they're just like, whatever. Right. Um, and station is fucking annoying. <laughs> so I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I could see how someone might, might think that, but they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, overall, like I like it and I, I really liked face the music and I'm, I'm, I'm a total Bill and Ted fan. Hell yeah. All right. On. Well, that does it for our 2020 look back episodes. Uh, and I, I'm so glad you were able to join me for this, Josh. Um, why don't you tell people about what's going on over on Awesome Movie Year? Yeah, well, as we've been saying many times in this episode, we've been talking about the films of 1984 and we're getting closer to the end of that season. And so we'll have a new awesome movie year to announce fairly soon. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we've been talking about a lot of fun movies uh, we've had some cool guests on, including uh, Albert Pune, the director of Road to Hell, which is the sequel, sort of the sequel <laughs> to Streets of Fire. Uh, and some, uh, I don't know if it's still coming up or not yet, but maybe something cool coming up that I won't spoil. Oh, no, it, it will already be out by the time this goes up. Okay, so. well, then we also <laughs> had Joe Esposito on our episode about the Karate Kid. Uh, he's the singer, of course, of You're the Best Around, which is the best song around. It sure is. Um so yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Jason Harris, we got to mention, is the co-host. And check out awesomemovieyear.com and uh, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Jason allegedly is going to put some things on our Instagram and uh, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. And uh, you can hear Dave uh, offer his opinions in some of these episodes as well. We appreciate that you have been watching the movies along with us. I, I am trying. I, it was my goal going into 2020, and then I, I had an excuse to actually follow through on that goal. <laughs> we hope you continue. Yes, I will. I will. Uh, tell, tell everybody also where they can uh, find some of those articles that you were talking about. You have links on your site? Uh, well, my site is joshbellhateseverything.com, and you can find at least a write-up of what we've just been talking about, which I should have uh, set soon, and hopefully by the time this episode comes out. Um, 
those links are uh, on my social media, uh, Signal Bleed on Twitter and Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook. I always link to everything that I write. So I did recently on my Twitter uh, do a thread of my uh, favorite pieces that I published in 2020. And that includes some of the things that I mentioned, uh, the piece on Heather Langenkamp in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and my piece on Gwyneth Paltrow in the 90s and the uh, piece on the 2011 version of The Thing. Uh, I mentioned all of those in there as well as some other cool stuff. So uh, yeah, follow me on social media for all my fun observations about movies. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Josh, thanks as always for being here. And I will uh, talk to you about a new movie sometime soon. I look forward to it. Did you like The Parent Trap where two young Lindsay Lohans discover their estranged twin sisters at a summer camp and switch places? Then you might also like young camp counselors being stalked and murdered one by one by a masked assailant on Friday the 13th. Did you like reporter Drew Barrymore going undercover as a high school student to get a good story and never been kissed? Then you might also like FBI agent Johnny Utah infiltrating a clique of surfers who moonlight as bank robbers in Point Break. Listen to You Might Also Like, a podcast where you receive the movie suggestions you didn't know you needed, hosted by me, Luke Spaulding, to get movie suggestions like these and many more absurd but surprisingly helpful recommendations. Each week I'll review two movies that are very different but surprisingly linked, and you might like both of them. I said might. Listen for new episodes every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you may get your podcasts, and then find me on social media at You Might Also Like Pod. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about our top 10 first-time watches of 2020. Thank you, Josh Bell, for joining me on that one. And everybody, I hope you're enjoying this end-of-year coverage and are excited to get into some new movies. But... Make sure you go back and watch some of these movies we just talked about and some from the top 10 films of 2020 and the top five documentaries of 2020 because lots of great movies to check out. But now it is time to start moving forward and we are planning a whole bunch of new Piecing It Together episodes in the coming weeks. And I am always looking for new co-hosts. So if you enjoy what we do here on Piecing It Together make sure to get in touch with me. I'm always looking for new people to join me. And of course, I love getting all my old favorites back on the show as well. So I'll always be getting everybody to come back and do new episodes, but love getting new people too. So uh, that does it for today's episode. Make sure you're subscribed wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Also check out Awesome Movie or make sure you subscribe to that while you're at it. And uh, follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. I already told you about the Patreon, but don't forget to check that out. Produced by David Rosen Patreon. And uh, yeah, that does it for today. So this episode, we're looking back at classics. So I'm going to play you out with a piece of music from my first album, Echoes in the Dark. Let's look back to that. And I'm going to go with the track, If Only Tonight I Could Sleep which there is a great music video for, directed by my friend Doug Farah, a filmmaker here in Las Vegas. So check that out, too, over on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash music by David Rosen. But uh, yeah, this is If Only Tonight I Could Sleep from my first album, Echoes in the Dark, which is available on all the music services out there. Enjoy this track, and we'll be back with more Piecing It Together coming up next week.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.